0: clicker is clicker. good morning Harley how are we doing good morning. I'm doing great. <laughs> hey, today is the first day of the week. I made it up the stairs, showered, uh, shaved. I'm I'm doing good. I'm glad to be here. Um, for those of you who are visitors, my name is Luke Gradless, and I have the great honor of being one of the pastors here at Harmony Baptist Church along with Brother Joe Canales. Um, yes, it was a, a rough week for me. If you haven't been here before, I have a ruptured disc that has been an issue for me for years. And this was one of the weeks where it decided I wasn't going to walk much this week. So um, I'm glad to be here with you guys. I might take a break and sit down a little bit. So excuse me for that. And no, I'm not trying to go more casual with the tennis shoes. Uh, just a matter of necessity on, on days like today. Uh, before we jump into the word, I got a few announcements for everybody. So make sure you got your pen and paper handy because we got a few big events occurring. One next Sunday is our family worship Sunday. So every quarter, when we have a fifth Sunday, meaning there's five Sundays in a month, uh, we want to get the whole church family together. And so what we do on fifth Sundays is instead of us having our 9.30 Spanish service, our 11 o'clock English service, and our 11 o'clock Children's Church, we just at 11 o'clock get everybody together, and we do one big worship s- service uh, as a family. Uh, we do this one because we don't ever want to be two churches. All right, we may have a Spanish service and we may have an English service, but we are one body Amen. united under Christ. And we believe it's very important for us to come together on a regular basis, shake hands, sing songs together, worship, and just make sure we're all staying in the same place. The other big thing is we think it's huge for our kids to be in worship with their parents. Uh, we think it's important for them not to think of their church and then big church. If they've ever worked in children's ministry, the kids always call this big church. And a lot of kids... They'll reach teenage years, and they'll never really have felt at home in big church. We don't want that to be the case. We want them to feel at home in here and know that they're part of the family just as much as either, any one of us. And so on fifth Sundays, we all get together, and uh, we do that. So next Sunday, the order of events will be at 9.30. We'll have our regular Sunday school. 11 o'clock, worship for everyone. And then afterwards, we will have a family meal. Uh, during that family meal, we won't be having a business meeting this month. Uh, we will just be having a good time of fellowship. The only thing we'll be doing during the um, meal is we have some kids who have completed the Bible challenge for the year. And so those little guys will be getting their trophies. Um, do remind your children because some aren't ready yet. They have all year to get it done. So if if they aren't done now, that's okay. they still got plenty of time. We just had some that got really eager about it, and they're ready to, to move on to the next level. So keep that in mind. Then on Wednesday, April 3rd, Uh, we will be having a business meeting instead of our uh, regular Wednesday Bible studies. So on Wednesday, April 3rd, we'll meet in here, and we'll have a business meeting just to kind of talk about Easter game plan, how the year's been going, and some of the things that we're going to be looking to do throughout the summer. So keep those dates in mind. And then uh, we'll also talk about all the fun stuff for Easter because we got a lot of fun things happening there Uh, with Easter let me give you two things we're ready for people to start bringing stuff so on that back table um, you will see a sign-up sheet that has the things that we need for the Easter picnic so if you're willing to bring water or candy filled eggs or hot dog buns or or whatever uh, feel free to sign up for that if you haven't been here before we for the last six years or so have had a big Easter family picnic right before for uh, Easter Sunday, and it's a great time. We have a lot of people out here, games, food, all kinds of fun stuff. So we welcome you to uh, come out to those things for us. All right, let's go ahead and jump into the Word. We have been in a series called The Gospel Colored Glasses, and this series has been taking us through the book of 1 Corinthians. And the reason we call this series The Gospel-Colored uh, Glasses is it's important for you and I to understand as Christians that when we become believers, we don't get to segment parts of our life off. So when you kind of look at how a lot of people in their day-to-day lives like to live, they create kind of these different segments of their lives where different rules apply. Right? There's hear me at work, And at work, there's a certain group of people I hang with. There's a certain way I talk. There's a certain thing I joke about. There's a certain way I behave. And then over here in my life, I have my family. And in my family segment, there's a way I act. There's a way I behave. There's a way I entertain myself. There's a way that I talk. And these may not be the same behaviors and actions. And we see people a lot of times when they start coming to church, all they do is they add kind of another circle to their life and go, well, now I got this church area too. So I got work me, I got home me, I got friends me, now I got church me. And at church, you come in and you kind of figure out, okay, what's the lingo? What are the things I'm supposed to say here? How am I supposed to act? And you learn to fit in. And what really ends up happening is you're never a consistent individual. Who you are is dependent on the circumstance you're in. It's dependent upon the people you're with. It's dependent upon who's watching you and who's paying attention. And what 1 Corinthians is really addressing with the church is, that doesn't work. So there's three things Paul's been kind of hitting home for us with this church. The first is, the church is united in the word. So as a body of believers, we are not going to let little things pull us apart. We are all going to center ourselves in scripture. And scripture is what is going to guide our lives and lead our lives. The second thing he points out to us is, well, Scripture becomes our foundation. We also understand that as the church, we're at war with the world's culture. And this is really hard for a lot of people to take in because, especially in this day and age, all of us want to be looked upon as popular, All of us want to be looked in a positive light. A lot of us want to have people who appreciate and like us. Now, I know some of you may not participate, but this whole younger generation growing up in Instagram, growing up in WhatsApp, growing up in Snapchat, growing up in Facebook, their whole lives are about how do I craft an image that I can put forward that will get other people to like me. And what's really scary about it is in the past we all did this. But we all did this in high school. You all wanted to have people like you. you want to be part of the great clique. Right? But the difference is back then you couldn't actually quantify the numbers. Now you can. Now you can literally go, well, I have X amount of friends. I have X amount of reach. When I post these pictures, I get this many comments and this many likes. And hey, when I dress like this, I have this many people tell me I look great. But if I do this, I have a bunch of people telling me it's not my best day. And so we have a bunch of people who are trying to be Christians and be in the culture of the world. And what Paul tells these Corinthians is it's not possible. These two cultures will never sync up. They're completely at odds with each other. They're built on different things. They're chasing different things. They require different behaviors. You cannot be a hip, worldly Christian. Which... It used to be a thing you didn't have to say to anybody. I kind of think we all knew that. But I tell you, nowadays I turn on the TV and I see more and more churches trying to look like you're at a concert. I see pastors trying to preach about how you shouldn't worry about being worldly, but clearly they've spent hours and thousands of dollars crafting their outfit that they're wearing for you that day. Which, by all means, you guys know I didn't do today. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to look good, and I'm not saying it's not bad to be aware of what's happening in the culture. But as a Christian, what you and I will learn is, our relationship with God is not one little bubble in our life. If Christianity is part of who we are, it encompasses everything. The gospel impacts the way I live at home. It impacts the way I work. It impacts the hobbies I have. It impacts who I am at church. It takes over the totality of who I am. There is no single piece of my life that is off limits to God because He is Master and I am servant. And so this is a big thing that Paul's hitting here. We have to stand on the Word, we have to stay away from the culture of the world. And then because we're part of God's family, because you're in this intimate, loving relationship with God, you should always be growing, and you should always be serving. Amen. And so again, this becomes another thing that's very different about us versus the culture of the world. A lot of modern Christianity preaches and teaches that the whole focus is for you to say the believer's prayer. Do I make you feel guilty? Do I make you feel fearful of hell? Do I make you feel unbelievably hopeful that God has this great image of you? Do I sell you on the fact that he's got plans for your prosperity? Let me figure out the sales pitch that will get you to walk the aisle, to say a prayer, and take a dunk in the tank, and then we're done. You're good. I can check you off. You're saved. You sit there, chill out. Let me focus on all the other people who haven't done that stuff. And what happens as believers is we go, is this really what this is all about? That's it? And so the Corinthian letter, what Paul's addressing is no, that's nowhere clear and close to what this is all about. As Christians, the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the moment the Holy Spirit comes into your life, that is not the end of anything except death ruling over you. What that really is, is that's the start of a brand new life, empowered in the holiness of God, where you now have His power, you have His love, and you have His self-discipline in you, driving you to be something different. And if we're not caught up in that passion, if we're not on fire with that perspective and with that opportunity, then something's missing. And so, as Paul has written to the Corinthians, he's concerned because not only has he seen them losing sight of Scripture, not only has he seen them start to divide themselves, not only has he seen them start to really embrace the culture around them, but he also looks at them and goes, Guys, it's been a couple years since I've seen you, and you haven't grown at all since that moment. In fact, some of you may be further behind than you were when I left you. How's that happening? And so as we come into chapter 8, I want you to kind of think for a second about your perspective because I'll be honest with you, I get a little concerned when, when I go through books like Corinthians. And the reason I get a little concerned sometimes is, I think I want to stand up and walk and then my back reminds me I don't. Um, what Corinthians can do sometimes is it points out so much of our moralistic behavior. All right, so, we've gone through this book, we've talked about how we should be sexually immoral. We've talked about how uh, we should behave at church. We've talked about how we should deal with forgiveness. And there's a thing that happens to us as Christians where we are just drawn to the behaviors. And so, a lot of times, as we go through these books, what tends to happen is you start to make a list of the things you need to do differently. Right? I need to be more patient. I need to be more kind. I need to be less angry. I need to be more holy. I need to stop lusting. I need to pray more. I need to do this more. And the reality is you've missed the entire point. Christianity is not about behavior change. This is not about you becoming your best you. You. Christianity is about you being an unbelievably intimate and loving relationship with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And through that relationship that is more profound, more life-changing, more fulfilling than any other relationship that you have ever experienced in your entire life, you begin to change. And because who he is is all of this perfection and this goodness and this love, when you're in his presence and he starts to change you, all of them start to look like a better version of you. Because when you're with God and start to become more like God, you become more patient. You become more loving. You become more graceful. But the key thing that you and I can never get mixed up is that doesn't occur from you saying, I'm going to be more patient. I'm going to be more patient. I'm going to be more patient. It comes from you saying, I am going to get closer to Jesus. I am going to know him more. I'm going to spend more time with him. It's when that occurs that then you start to change. And so I want to caution you today as we, we listen to Paul's listening, our teaching that we don't look at this as just a list of things you've got to start doing better in your life. And that instead you start looking at this as this is what should happen to you when you're in this kind of dynamic, loving relationship with Jesus. And so let's look at chapter 8 because it's going to start kind of in a weird place and you're going to go, what does this have to do with me? And so we're going to look at this and then we're going to kind of break it down. So, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul starts talking about something that's very unique to you and I. We don't really understand this in our culture. It says, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in this world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all are and all things are, and we exist for him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by him are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol, until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worst if we do not eat it, nor the better if we do eat it. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For though your knowledge, he is weak and is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it was weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble." So, Paul's not always the easiest guy to understand, and this, of course, is something that doesn't really fit our culture. So, let's kind of break down what he's talking about here. What he's really getting to the gist of here, and he's just using this example of meat sacrifice to idols, is what he's saying is, we are to act in the best interest of others. That's really what he's trying to say here. As Christians, what you and I are motivated by is not what is permissible for me, what is allowable for me, what is okay, what it can I do that is the best for other people. And so let me kind of explain what's happening here. Corinth is not a Jewish city. So this church is built in a place where all of the Jewish morality that you would have gotten from an Old Testament, these people don't understand. Their culture is full of pagan worship, and one of the things that happens in their city is animals are sacrificed to other gods. Lowercase g, right? What Paul's saying is, we know those gods aren't real. We know Zeus is nothing but a fictionary character. We know Apollo is just a, a mythical creature. But you have people in this city who are sacrificing animals to Zeus, to Apollo, and then that meat is later sold in the market. And so what's happening is you have the church split on, well, is it okay to eat this meat or not? And some people are going, well, I mean, since it was used in a pagan... Ritual? No. That's like us condoning what they're doing. And you have another group going, guys, we know there's no such thing as Zeus. It's meat. There's nothing that that cow did that's worse than the cow you eat over here. So like, if it's on sale, buy it and eat it. And the church is at odds over this. What's the right thing to do? And what Paul addresses here is there's really not a right thing to do. He goes, look, for those of you who want to eat the meat, you're right. There is no such thing as Apollos. There is no such thing as Zeus. So if you want to buy that meat and eat it, go ahead. It's just cow. It's the same cow your God made that you buy over here. And as long as you understand that there is no value in those rituals, as long as you're not partaking in the actual sacrifice in the temple, then yeah, you're fine to eat the meat. But he goes, I want you to consider something, because here's what you guys are basing your behavior on. You're basing it on this knowledge of, I'm right. These brethren are wrong. Now I can tell you, as a man, I have lost many an argument that I started out being right. Am I alone in that, men? Have any of you started an argument with your spouse where, in theory, you were right at the beginning of the argument? But then the way that you proceeded throughout the argument to explain that you were right, you ended up being wrong. Anybody ever been there? But you were right in knowledge, you were right in philosophy, you were right in your theory, but your delivery method may have been slightly off, and that has become the bigger issue now is now how we discuss this, not what we were talking about at the beginning. Amen. Yes. Well, that's kind of what Paul's addressing here. As he's going, look, for you mature believers who understand that there's nothing wrong with this meat, technically, yes, you're right. However, if you know eating that meat and putting that meat at a church table makes somebody who used to practice those pagan rituals, it makes their conscience burn. It makes them stress. It makes them fearful. Why are you doing it? yes, technically you're right. But if you can choose to do something that doesn't put that burden on your brother, why not do that? The point that he's making to us, and this is a point that I think you and I have to embrace more in our lives is, being a Christian isn't always about being right. It's about being loving. We get so many of these verses that we get from the Lord. In Philippians 2, 3 it says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Paul's looking at that group that has the knowledge that that meat's fine to eat, and he's going, I get it, you're right. But just on this issue, for their conscience, could you not humble yourself? Just eat something else. If it really isn't a big deal, then why make it a big deal? act in that humility towards someone else. And let's be real. Humility is simply love. right? We've talked about this a lot at this church, but I'll remind you. Love is not me saying I like you. Love is not me saying you make me feel good. Love is me saying I will joyfully sacrifice for your benefit. That's love. I will joyfully sacrifice for your benefit. But when does somebody do that? They do that when they think like this. They do that when they look at another human being and go, you are more significant than I am. And so I will hurt because I would rather that you not. That's what Paul's calling these Christians to do. Look at what he says in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. And he says this because everybody's arguing about what commandments do they need to hold. And it's funny because People get wrapped around the axle around this, but Jesus and God have been very simple on this, even since back in Deuteronomy. Well, there's lots of variations and lots of technicalities on the law. They all boil down to like two things. Love God, love people. And so in this midst of this discussion around commandments, Jesus says this. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And so what he's saying here is this should be the calling card of Christianity. And don't get me wrong, this doesn't mean that we don't stand by our values. This doesn't mean that we don't say that the word of God is right. It just means we can do so in a way that still shows people we love them. It is possible to both firmly plant my feet by the river of truth that comes from the Word of God and not move, and also be kind and loving to people at the same time. It's not an either or. I sometimes feel like we think it's an either or. I can be loving, and if I do that, well, then I have to ignore a lot of this scripture. Or I stand by the scripture, which means forget all you people, I don't care about your feelings. God's saying there's a middle. There's a middle where you can stand and not betray this word at all, but also express to people you love them. And that's what he's asking them to do in this situation with the meat. Yes, you're right, but do what is right for your brother. Encourage them, help them. Jump with me a little bit. Let's look at chapter 9. In chapter 9, he starts to talk a little bit about this concept from a kind of a slightly bigger place. And so I want you to skip down with me to verses 19 through 27. And this is where we get back to viewing this concept of, okay, how do we not just have this idea that Christianity is about changing morals? In verse 19 he says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I become as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, is without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I may win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I may win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in the race or Do you not know those who run in a race all run? only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable reef, but we an imperishable one. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air but I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Here's what Paul's saying, and this is what I love about Paul. Paul is unbelievably focused on what his mission is in life. His mission is not about him being a good person. Paul's mission is to make as many disciples as possible. That's all he cares about. This man has one mission in life, and that is before he goes, how many people can I bring into a relationship with God? That's all he cares about. And what he says is, Christ came and he gave me freedom. And this is a huge thing for you to understand. Our relationship in God starts with Christ breaking the chains of sin and slavery in our lives. And it's all throughout Scripture. All throughout Scripture we hear these passages about freedom. Romans 8, 1-2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What's he saying? Before Christ, all of you are slaves of sin. And there is only one place you are going. You may get there in slightly different ways. You may get there in slightly different times. But you're all headed right towards death. Christ has come in and He has broke those chains. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? There is freedom. Christ has come to free you. Look at Galatians one. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What's he saying? He's saying Christ loved you so much and wanted you to be free so much that He was tortured, He was beaten, and He died to set you free. Do not take that freedom and run right back to slavery that's an interesting thing because we see it's a little bit more complicated than that look at Galatians 5.13 for you were called to freedom brothers only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another so with this freedom if I choose with this freedom to become a disciple of God what do I start to see there's actually responsibilities I have And in fact, the most beautiful description of Christianity, the most accurate one used in the Bible, and I'll be honest with you, the editors of the Bible were nervous about some of the Hebrew words and some of the Latin words. The word you most often see, servant, in the New Testament, the best translation for it is not servant. It's slave. Relationship you see described in the New Testament is Jesus as master, you as slave. The reason they were nervous about this word is the same reason you and I get a little nervous about it. When a man has a slave, it doesn't turn out well. Because when you and I think of slavery, what we think of is somebody who treats another human being as a thing, as their property as a resource that they can do whatever they want with for whatever they need. And especially in America, where we have had our foundational days as a country built on this, we're so, we're so afraid of that term because we've seen how ugly it can be. But what people miss about the slavery described in the Bible is, this is not slavery where two forces met each other and one defeated the other. Me being a slave to God comes not because he pounded me into submission. It becomes after he saved me. I decided the only place in the world I wanted to be was with him. I am not his slave because I have to be. I'm his slave because I want to be. I'm his slave because when he broke those trains and he gave me my freedom, and he gave me the choice to live my life the way I want, what I said in my life is the only thing I want More of you, I want to be where you are, I want to be in your presence, I want to build your kingdom, I want to know your love. That's all I want. And so, what Paul is urging us here is before Christ, you are a slave by force. You are a slave because the world and Satan and sin have oppressed you and have pushed you down and have beaten you and have forced you to do what they say. And there's only one path for you and that's to death. Christ comes to break those trains and to give you freedom. What will you do with it? What He's hoping is, is for many of us, we will look at who freed us and go, you know what the greatest thing I could ever do is? I could serve that person greatest thing I could do with the freedom that's been given me is I can serve my Lord who gave me that freedom. And that's what Paul says here. Paul goes, you look at my life and I have exchanged many of my rights and my freedoms, but I do it with joy. No one's forced me to. I have acted like a Jew to Jews. Why? So that they can hear the gospel. I have acted like a Gentile. The Gentiles, why? So they can hear the gospel. I have been in jail with prisoners, why? So that I can share the gospel with them. Paul goes, I am so overjoyed and so passionate about being a disciple of the Lord Jesus. I will sacrifice anything to do what he's asked me to do. And so brothers and sisters, the paradigm that you live in, this tension that you live in, is you are absolutely freed by God to not run through this life terrified of messing up. But his hope is you will use that freedom to pursue him and his kingdom and to bring others into that glorious freedom that you realize every single day. And to me, that's an important thing for us to understand because brothers and sisters, he says here at the end, run as if to win the race. It's funny, growing up as an athlete, which I know you can't tell right now, um, I learned that failure was not always directly tied to victory. What I mean by that is, I was very risk adverse as a child. When I would play baseball or I'd play basketball, my biggest fear was making a mistake. And so I told you before, like, I could practice baseball and I could, I could hit great in practice. And I'd hit great at the batting cages. But in the game, I couldn't hit. Because when I get up to the plate in a game, all I was thinking about is don't strike out. Don't strike out. And as a young kid, it was the same thing with basketball. I'd practice and I'd play street ball and I'd play in the neighborhood and I'd play great. And then I'd get into a game and I'd be thinking, don't miss a shot. Don't miss a shot. Don't miss a shot. Do you know what happens when you're thinking, don't miss a shot in basketball in a game? Someone passes the ball to you. You're wide open. You clearly should shoot the ball. And instead of going, okay, the basket's two feet in front of me, who can I pass this to? I'm going to send it back 15 feet this way to a guy who's guarded because at least if I do that, I can't miss the shot. But guess what? When you make that mistake, no one goes, well, thank goodness he didn't miss. Everybody goes, what is wrong with this guy? Shoot the ball! But I was so locked up with fear, I'd never risk it. It wasn't until later in life that I started realizing the only way I was going to score was shooting. And in fact, in many sports, you actually get a lot of tolerance for missing. If you're a baseball player and you can hit the ball four out of ten times, you would be one of the greatest hitters in the history of mankind. And they would pay you more money than you would ever know what to do with. That means the majority of the time you would go up to do your job of hitting the ball, you would fail. And yet you would still be considered the greatest ever. And I think Paul's saying a similar thing to us here. Don't run not to fall. Run to win the race. Don't sit there and take the turn lightly. Don't hold back because you don't want to trip. Don't be worried about pulling a hamstring. You see the finish line and go. Go. You care. Use every ounce of strength, every bit of energy, every breath in your lungs, and you go at that line. And don't stop. So many of us as Christians, we read this book and we start making the list. Don't do this. Don't do that. 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 Can't be a bad person. And then what do you actually do? Nothing your most Christian activity each week is sitting in the pews watching the fat, bald pastor preach to you. And that is you being a champion for the word. No! You think Paul would walk in and if we told him that's being a Christian, he'd be like, great job, guys, you've got it. You clearly understand what this is about. He would look at us and go, what Lord are you serving? What gospel have you been preached? This isn't the fight. This isn't the game. This is where we recharge. This is halftime. This is when we regroup and we recharge in the love of our God and we bask that we're in a place where sin is not pulling us apart, where we're encouraged that there's other brothers and sisters around us fighting the same fight every day. Or we're refilled by the word that encourages us, where we get new tools and new abilities that we can take outside those walls and use. But this isn't the game. And that's what Paul's encouraging them to remember. Your job is to make disciples that love God and love people. That's your job. It's not to be morally right. It's not to know all the rights and wrongs. It's not to not make mistakes. It's to build the kingdom of God. I want to leave you with one last part that he has. And it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. At the end of chapter 10, in verse 23, he says this All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and wants to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you there is meat sacrificed to idols, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of your own conscience. I mean not your own conscience, but that of the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that which I give thanks for? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What he's saying, brothers and sisters, is, is that needs to become the calling card of our lives that he circles back to this thing of me and he goes, look, if you show up at a believer's house and they set food before you and say, hey, we're so happy to have you here, eat with us and eat the food. Now, if they set that food before you and go, we want you to know that this was uh, you know, made holy by Apollo, then go, no. There's a Christian who honors God and all he does I won't take. Amen. We stand by our Father.
1: Amen
0: brothers and sisters, my encouragement to you today, don't forget why we're here. Don't forget the mission you've been given. Don't get sideways and think that this is about you not sinning. This whole thing is about a God who loved us so much, He sacrificed Himself to save us.
2: Amen.
0: And now He has asked us to go do the same. He has asked us to go out into that world and to daily sacrifice our pride, daily sacrifice our comfort, daily sacrifice our freedoms so that we can bring other people to the throne of Christ and they too can see His love and His beauty. Don't forget that i going to close us in prayer here. Well, not close us, close us from the sermon. Sisters, uh, Maria Maria's going to come up and sing for us, and then we're going to t- partake in the Lord's Supper. As we're praying, I want you thinking about a few things. One, as we take this, this isn't bread and juice. This is us proclaiming that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. This is us proclaiming that not only did he live and die and resurrect, but that we have chosen to follow him each and every day of our lives. And that means he's not our guidance counselor, he's not our consultant. He is our Lord who is setting that path for us. Second, in the good book, it encourages us to remember when we take the Lord's Supper, that if there is any sin that we have held in our hearts and we have not asked for repentance from God of it, we should do that first. Second, if there is a brother or sister that we are still not giving forgiveness to who has asked of it, before we take the supper, we should get that relationship right. And so you think about those things and you prepare your heart so when we take this, you can do so with pure joy knowing that you're proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear Father, we come before you and we love you, Lord. We love you for the sacrifice that you've made for each and every one of us. We thank you for the freedom that you've given us, and that, Lord, in that freedom, we can choose to follow you. Father, I pray that there is a passion in all of our hearts, a fire in our spirits, Lord, where we are consumed by the desire to build your kingdom and bring the lost into your life. Father, I pray that we are people that don't become stuck in the legalism of your morality, but we are a people, Lord, that show everybody every day that we love you and that we love them. In the wonderful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.
1: Let's all stand. behind your regrets and mistakes come today there's no reason to wait Jesus is calling bring your sorrows and trade them for joy from the ashes a new life is born Jesus is calling there's still time to come forward Savior Isn't he wonderful Sing hallelujah Christ is risen Savior. Oh, what a Savior. Isn't he wonderful? Sing hallelujah. Christ is risen. as you wait for the crown tell the world of the treasure you found you can be seated
0: in 1st Corinthians chapter 11 verse 23 it says for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way he took the cup also after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Heavenly Father we ask you Lord Bless this bread, Lord. May we be reminded that this represents the broken body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that brokenness, Lord, it's not defeat. It's love, Lord. It's the love that comes from you being willing to sacrifice yourself for us. That you, Lord, are willing to take on the pain and the burden that we deserved. Father, we thank you for his sacrifice. And may we honor you as we partake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. it says while they were eating he took some bread and after a blessing he broke it and gave it to them and said take it this is my body as a family let us eat and when he had taken the cup and given thanks he gave it to them and they all drank from it and he said to them this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many truly I say to you I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. Dear Holy Father, we pray over this cup, Lord, and we pray over this church family. May we be reminded, Lord, that we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. That means, Lord, that you have washed away all of our sin, that you have made us as white as snow. And not only, Lord, have you taken away all of our guilt, but you have covered us in your righteousness. Father, as we walk out those doors today, may we remember that we no longer walk in shame and guilt, but we walk in the power of your righteousness. Father, may we represent you. And may we represent you well. We love you, and in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. As a church family, let us drink. As a church family, one of the things that we are blessed by is that we have been taught by the Lord that we do not go through this journey by ourselves. We are here to divide each other's pains and we are here to share each other's joys. And so before we close today, uh, Brother Joe is going to pray for one of our families who has... Uh, some pain ahead of them that they need prayer, they need support, and they need to know that they have a church family praying for them. And then I'm going to close this out by praying for a family uh, that is about to experience some unbelievable joy and wants to share that with us. So, Brother Joe?
2: Uh, I'm going to ask... Brother Joe, would you mind praying for
1: John
2: too? Okay. I'm going to ask Catalina and her family to come up. is going to have a procedure tomorrow. I don't need that. Would family come up? And uh, she's very afraid right now, so uh, she needs prayer. I'm going to ask whoever wants to also lay hands on her to come up at this time. I know it's hard to look at the teachers and always painful, and I know that uh, one the time you're so afraid. And uh, this is where she feels right now. Yes. So right now, I'll in front of prayer? Uh, you guys So great, Heavenly Father, we just give you cover couple of the answers. Yes. Heavenly Father, we know that right now, Lord God, that she is afraid. So yes. well, Heavenly Father, we know that that fear will be taken away from, by this prayer, Lord so God, that the people who are here with her not from us but for you god, that you will provide this marriage yes. heavenly father that everything will be okay tomorrow teacher that there'll be no consequences no problems for me oh god and heavenly father we just wanted to know that you care and we care for this oh heavenly father we thank you for this family lord god that is coming to this foundation lord god for husbands to do it but lord god that uh, just her uh, daughters lord god that, come on Wednesdays and study, Father God. We know that they all love God. And we just thank you so much for your help, Lord God. We thank you for the miracles of people like us. Uh, oh, Heavenly Father, give her this sister, Lord God, strengthen her. Give her the power that she needs to go through, God. Heavenly Father, we just ask that you continue to be the witness, Lord, Lord God. We just completely strengthen her. Lord God, we just raise her up for the we pray in the name of Jesus before you all go, there's another person we need to pray for. The pastor here is there best. And I ask if you gather around him also. And I'm gonna ask James to voice that prayer. Heavenly Father, yes. We are called to pray and to edify our brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. Lift up our Pastor Luke and our Pastor Joe also. And Luke needs healing that only he can provide. And lift him up and pray that you heal him, Father, bring him back strong so that he can continue to bring your glory to us and to a nation and a country and a world that is in the darkness. Father, we thank you that you listen to our prayers for your son blood that we just celebrated, Father, that uh, we can come to you with these requests. And we know that you love each and every one of us. And, you love Luke, and we love to pray. that that's we heal to the Lord in your good. We ask that through Jesus. Amen. One more prayer goes on to John. Uh, Father. Most gracious Heavenly, Heavenly Father, we just had to do where we're but uh, that he can bring him back. Heavenly yes. Father comes for him and says it's fine. But Heavenly Father, when we ask him, how come he's not here at church, he says he's doing that. So, Father God, we know that he is in thing. We know that he's doing that. We ask that you be with him, Lord God. Yes. Heavenly Father, we also hand him up to you, Lord God. Heavenly Father, will You do your, 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 your work, Lord God, that you always do so well. The miracles you provide. Father God, we just pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Thank you everybody. Uh,
0: Before we close, I'm going to ask for Israel and for Cindy to come up. As I said, we get to divide each other's pains and we get to share each other's joys. Uh, When is it this week? Saturday. Saturday. So Saturday of East two will be united together in marriage by the Almighty God. It is such a beautiful thing to, to be in holy matrimony, remembering that that is an institution created by our, our mighty God back before sin had anything to do with this world. And it is a beautiful thing that we know that uh, them getting married, not just because of their love for each other, but because of their love for the Lord. Amen. That He's going to give them all the strength, love, and self-discipline that they are going to need to argue with each other for the rest of their lives. <laughs> Let me go ahead and close with them in prayer. And then I'll ask you as you guys are heading out, just come up and give them a hug and tell them how much you love them, how excited you are for them. Heavenly Father, we ask you to be with these two. Uh, We are so thankful, Lord, that we have been witnesses to the love that they have for each other. And we're so thankful, Lord, to know that the center of that love is you. It is you, Father, who have taught us to love sacrificially. It is you, Lord, who have taught us to love abundantly. It is you, Lord, who have taught us to be joyous as we go throughout this world. And so we thank you, Lord, for bringing these two souls together, uh, that they will become one. And we pray, Lord, that you will be their shield, that you will guard them, and that you will protect them. And we pray, Lord, that you will use them as an instrument in this world to show people how wonderful and beautiful and amazing your love is. Father, bless them and bless their marriage. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody, for being here. God bless you. You guys have a great week. Thank you. Thank you. you. Take care of yourself. Yes, thank you.